Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here again for your bi-weekly, semi-weekly, bi-weekly? I think it can be either. This is like flammable and inflammable. Yeah, exactly. They I mean think, the same thing. I think they do mean the same thing. And if they don't, don't tell me because I've been using them <laughs> interchangeably. <laughs> I don't want to know. Let me live in my ignorance, please. <laughs> Speaking of flammable, uh, today we're, we're covering um, 28 Days Later, the 2002 slash 2003 to the United States mm-hmm. film written by Alex Garland, directed by Danny Boyle. It's amazing. It is. If you've never it so seen much. it, you will 100% feel like you'll never survive a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, truly. You'll just give up. Yeah, you'll be like, welp. <laughs> well, that's going to be how that goes. Yeah. Really, this was one of the first zombie movies I ever watched when I was like old enough to actually understand what a zombie movie was. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was a kid, and I was just like, oh, it's a black and white movie, whatever, whatever, you know, yeah. not really understanding what was happening, just like, zombies, they eat people, mm-hmm. but not truly, like, grasping the concept of the movie. But then I watched this when I was probably like 15 or 16. It was around the same time that the zombie survival guide came out by Max Brooks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was like totally part of that zombie renaissance that happened in like the mid 2000s. Yeah, because of this movie. Yeah, because and of Resident this movie. Evil. And Resident Evil. And then the Walking Dead comic book was coming out a little bit later. Right. I think that came out like I was working at the library when it really got popular. So it like started in 2003. Okay. So mm-hmm. around the same time too then. Yeah. Um, and then... Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake was right. also considered one of the things responsible for the zombie renaissance, as it were. Zombie sauce? It nah, sounds that's... like zombie sauce. And <laughs> Ew. I don't know what that means, but um, I don't like it. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it was like zombie renaissance. And it really happened all at the same time because like, we had serious zombie movies in the 60s and we had more Romero in like, the 70s and 80s, obviously. And then it got campy. We had Return of the Living Dead. And then, you know, all of the offshoots of Return of the Living Dead, which had little to nothing to do with Romero. Had the Italians. We had Fulci doing his direct spinoff of Romero films with Zombie and the subsequent sequels there, which went completely in wild (laughs) and varied directions. Um, And then you had those who were imitating Fulci. So it had really branched out at that point, but then had kind of died off no pun intended until this modern renaissance happened in the early 2000s you know now that i'm thinking about it and putting the two and two together do you think it had anything to do with 9-11 not in the beginning because Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that were made that were seminal things were already in the works before 9-11 oh fair but i definitely think that perhaps the ongoing popularity Mm -hmm had to do maybe a little bit with 9-11 because certainly like 
the original wave of zombie films was coming off of like the atomic Mm -hmm. era horror and sci-fi films they never say what the cause you know what created the living dead and night of the living dead Mm -hmm. but you know different people have posited different things and one of the big theories is some kind of you know nuclear happening explosion Mm -hmm. leak etc that could have manifested in a bunch of different ways and you know we see that persist even into Return of the Living Dead and in a lot of the Fulci films where Mm -hmm. it has to do with something, you know, related to nuclear power or nuclear energy or nuclear weapons. And although we didn't have that in post 9-11, there was the anthrax scare that Mm -hmm. happened coming off of 9-11 and certainly just the general sort of like panic and these images of like cities being shut down and stuff like that, obviously for different reasons than, you know, some sort of nuclear event or, you know, as most of the modern zombie films have manifested some kind of pandemic event, Mm -hmm. like an illness. But I think it's related, certainly, Um, although the earlier ones were made a little before that because Danny Boyle talks about filming this when 9-11 was happening. Okay. Maybe the embrace of these movies had to do with that sort of like nihilistic post 9-11. I think you're definitely onto something with that. Yeah. Like there was a lot of shock that happened. Now, granted, I was in sixth grade when 9-11 happened. So like my perception of these events are colored through the fact that I was 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like it happened three days before my 11th birthday. Nobody came to my party that year. I mean, I know like tiniest violin, whatever, but So it's colored through the lens of being 11 at the time. Yeah. But I remember like this embrace of like nihilistic comedy and media and things like that, like in the years afterwards, plus the invasion of Iraq Mm -hmm. in 2003. I think that maybe that sort of like ability to be receptive to these type of movies, these like nihilistic, like last person on earth type movies potentially had something to do with that yeah and the very real feeling because i was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened and you know i've said this i was actually telling a much one of my interns who is considerably younger than me (laughs) about you know sort of bookending my high school career with columbine and 9-11 and then graduating college into the recession and it's like i think that the nihilistic thing is really true and certainly like my generation you know, like sort of whatever you want to call us, elder millennials. <laughs> um, we were definitely like, I don't want to say the first because that invalidates a lot of people's experiences. But, you know, my generation was certainly like coming out of high school and, and college like, oh, crap. Like our features are not going to be at all what we were promised, not to rip a phrase off of Tannis, but, you know. (laughs) So I think you're right. In the embrace of zombies and zombie culture is that, you know, the sort of post-apocalyptic world that we see in so many of these films felt much more near future, which is what I think Romero was also doing. But our ability to embrace them again and to get so invested in things like The Walking Dead Mm -hmm. in particular, I think, has to do a lot with our near present. Oh, yeah. I literally just put that like two and two together when I was thinking about that. And I was like, okay, all right. This is probably part of it. And I didn't see this movie until like I was probably like 2006, 2007. So it was a couple of years after this, but it definitely had already made its impact. 
But if you haven't seen the movie, 28 Days Later, it was directed by Danny Boyle, who you might know from Trainspotting or Sunshine, many movies, Slumdog Millionaire, which I feel like 28 Days Later doesn't get as much love as Slumdog because Slumdog was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won eight of them. Yeah. So very popular movie, but... He also goes on the wildly opposite direction of doing things like train spotting, which, <laughs> yeah, if you've never seen train spotting, disgusting. But it was written by Alex Garland, who also wrote Men and Ex Machina, very famous for his writing. So, and it stars Killian Murphy, probably the first thing I ever saw Killian Murphy in. He's wee baby in this. Yeah, this was basically his breakout role. Naomi Harris, who plays his female counterpart, Selena. Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston. Um, <laughs> he plays Major West, who he comes into play later on in the movie in a very big way. Brendan Gleeson, who plays Frank. And Megan Burns, who plays Hannah, his daughter. That's her main cast of characters. It's a very powerful movie with a very small cast. And you can tell even when you're watching the DVD, that it's pretty low budget. It's pretty lo-fi. You mentioned that, what was it filmed on? It was filmed on a Canon XL1 DV camera. It's one of the first major like studio films to be filmed on DV instead of 35 millimeter. Oh, wow. And the Canons, if you know those cameras at all, um, I have a variation of one at my house right now. <laughs> they are... Pro grade, but they're definitely like consumer pro grade. Like mm -hmm. they are handheld cameras mm -hmm. and they're not like big bulky like cameras that you would put on like a truck or something mm -hmm. like that. Like you can just tote these around and run around with them. And as a result, this film has like a really gritty, grainy, near realistic, like it's not quite a shot on video. Mm -hmm. It's like a higher quality shot on video, but you kind of get that feel to it. And you also get that really cool handheld feel to it. Obviously, this isn't and doesn't try to be a found footage film. Mm -hmm. But I think that even, you know, subsequent films that sort of toggle that line between like classic found footage and sort of modern handheld films, I'm thinking like Cloverfield, the first Cloverfield, mm -hmm. take a lot from the way that they did the handheld camera work so that you feel as an audience member like you might be running alongside our lead characters in a lot of the scenes. Yeah, the flexibility is definitely there. Mm -hmm. There's much more movement than you would see in like a studio film, like a, a big budget studio film. You know, you see a lot more of like panning shots and and a lot less uh, a lot less movement and and frantic action, I would say. Yeah. Like, not to say that there are no steady shots or, like, no panning shots in this movie at all, but there are many, many, many scenes that have, like, this very frantic, visceral energy that kind of gets you wrapped up in it. Yeah. And make you also feel unsafe, which is effective. Not necessarily fun, but effective. No, no. This film is a study in contrast, really. Like, yeah. frantic, frantic, frantic motion, and then just vast, like still you know nearly still shots of just vast emptiness and same thing with the sound like loud like scary lots of loud noises and and yelling and you know just frantic scary disturbing sound and then just like quiet 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 it does it so well it's very jarring on both ends and something that i just thought about that you might not even think while you're watching it is that there is very little to no digital effects in this movie. Correct. It's all practical, mm -hmm. which 
they needed very little by way of practicality. Like there's no intense gore, I would say. Right. That's all kind of off screen. But there's a lot of blood, a lot of fake contacts. Mm -hmm. Um, I always appreciate a fake contact as a like set piece because it's something that's very cheap, but very effective. Yeah. In this case, probably a lot of fake blood. Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say, like, they probably spent more on, like, squibs and blanks than they did on on, uh, effects, digital effects, so. Well, and because of the movement of the camera and the movement of the zombies or the infected, and we can talk about the debate there, they didn't have to do a lot with makeup either. There aren't a lot of, like, you know, close-up steady shots of any of these beings. There's one sort of seen toward the very, very end where we get, and you can tell they did some makeup work on those particular individuals. But by and large, you know, the creatures that are pursuing the characters are just blurs of arms and legs and bodies, and which makes it really, really scary. Like, you don't need the makeup to make it scary. Yeah. I want to go back to the soundtrack really quick. The soundtrack on this movie is awesome iconic yes it is loud driving like heavy music that keeps the forward motion of the movie just going and it would not be as dark of a film i think if they went with something more classical or like piano i mean obviously that would not really fit in with the movie anyways but zombie movies prior to this i think sax didn't dawn of the dead come out in oh four okay so Two years after this, because this came out in '02 in England, I think it was at Sundance or potentially Cannes. It was one of the indie independent film festivals, but it came out in 2002. And then Zack Snyder came out in 2004. And Snyder's film had a lot of heavy music, too. I think kind of taking cues from this. A little bit more campy, a little bit less purposeful. But this one, really, you had never really experienced a film with, like, driving specifically made for curated to movie with this sort of like heavy rock kind of music return of the living dead obviously has a lot of punk music but that's yeah a little different yeah i think the closest you can get to this or like the through line i draw is with goblin's score for dawn of the dead mm-hmm. different style like goblin is way more proggy this is definitely more reflective of the time in which it's made right. but you can kind of feel that musical through line where they're taking like a contemporary sort of rock-based genre and using it to score something, and it's got a really cool effect to it. Yeah, it feels sort of like what they were doing with the Matrix films. Yeah, definitely. Like with Mm -hmm. with the score that they were choosing for the Matrix films. So it's incredible. I personally think that it lends so much to the film that it would be less without Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and in fact, they've used the sort of central score piece by John Murphy. It's called In the House in a Heartbeat. And they've subsequently used it for other films. It becomes Big Daddy's theme in Mm Kick-Ass. And then they sort of did a reworking of it for one of the Terminator films, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like the Kick-Ass thing. Yeah. Um, The first Kick-Ass movie was like one of my favorites when I was a teenager. So (laughs) it's a great movie. Yeah. And Big Daddy is the best so like immediately when we started watching this movie so much of it i had forgotten yeah same like the thing that sticks in my mind the most is like oh my god if i was ever in a zombie apocalypse and the zombies were like this i would die immediately because there's no way (laughs) i mean they run i can't run they jump through your windows i'm not good at being spatially aware of anything (laughs) so i'm like constantly caught in between being like 
no, I probably have to give up the ghost because I can't do it. Yeah. Number one. And then I vacillate between that and like, no, I'm a problem solver. So I would just be like, oh, well, I guess I got to keep on trucking and then just like figure it out. I would not survive in a zombie apocalypse. I would just be like, hmm. What, what kind of life would you have if you did survive? You know? I, I mean, exactly. Yeah. I'm not... I've said this before, like, I am not a camper. I'm not a hiker. Like, I feel like you have to be, like, outdoorsy to survive in a zombie apocalypse. I don't like any of that. But if you could get to, like, a cottage core situation. Sure. And be okay. away from everybody. Sure. That would be the one thing. If I could somehow either be in a bunker where I have, like, all the supplies I need and lots of books or be in some, like, remote cottage and be able to like grow my food i would have to learn how to make cheese which i want to do anyway (laughs) yeah those are probably the two but like just getting there seems hard well you know though that folks who know how to broadcast radio will be in high demand that's true because radio will be one of the only ways of wireless communication that you won't need a battery for that is true yeah maybe that can be your purpose so if could we be. if we ever find ourselves in a zombie <laughs> apocalypse, you could be like, well, I gotta I gotta survive this because yeah. radio. This is like the the skill that I have. <laughs> I can do that, and I can keep like exotic houseplants alive. Yeah, you don't need accountants in a zombie apocalypse. No, so that is I'll probably, true. I'd probably be uh, phased out. <laughs> you can do stuff though. Yeah, I mean, I can build Gundams. Uh, do you need does anybody need plastic models made during the zombie apocalypse no I I can be useful in other ways I have a pretty big capacity to learn but yeah I would not be able to use my like very specific skill set in my career yeah to live post zombie apocalypse I can haul bags of fertilizer though if anybody needs heavy lifting manual labor somebody to just do all the grunt work I'll help with it I can do that (laughs) I could shoot a gun sometimes (laughs) <laughs> I mean, generally. Yeah. I'm aware of how it works. I'm no marksman, but I, I can, I've got a, <laughs> You've got a working knowledge. I have working knowledge. Yes. You could say that. I can learn how to do stuff. I'll be fine. There I, you I'm go. sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I would not escape these zombies, though. That is for sure. There's no way. When I watched this movie the first time, all of the zombie movies I had seen beforehand have slow zombies, the shamblers. Right. Right. Just like kind of like uh, like Walking Dead zombies, you know, bad in large groups, hard right. to get away from in large groups. But in general, if you came across one by itself, like probably going to be OK. These zombies, they click up. They're super fast. They run, mm-hmm. they jump, they climb. They can understand their surroundings. They're not just like driven by scent or smell or sound. They also can interpret like, oh, a flickering light means a person inside that house. Therefore, I need to jump through the window. Right. No, I'm out. Yeah. No, no way. And it seems like this can cross the animal boundary. It does seem that way. Yeah. Which is another like sort of Resident Evil-esque thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that was one of the things I can remember in the Resident Evil games. Like when people started playing them like, oh my God, there are zombie dogs. What? You know, and it was mind blowing at the time. But yeah, this kind of same thing, it seems like it can translate into other creatures. Not fun. No, don't like it. (laughs) Don't like it at all. Nope. Do we want to call these zombies or do we want to call them infected? Well, that is great debate. You know, people have been asking since this movie 
first came out, is this a zombie film or is it not a zombie film? And initially, Danny Boyle said no Mm -hmm. because Danny Boyle was worried about it getting kind of pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. He has since kind of come around. Alex Garland has kind of always said, like, no, it's a zombie film, even if we're calling them the infected, it's a zombie film. Mm -hmm. I say yes, it is a zombie film because even if you're not calling them, I mean, like, in the Romero films, they don't really refer to them as zombies either mm-hmm. but we understand them as zombies so yeah i say yes they are zombies i mean they literally never call them zombies in the walking dead right so they're always walkers but they're zombies for sure right yeah, yeah. if we define a zombie then it's a creature formerly human that craves human blood and or flesh mm-hmm if we define it that way, then they're, they're definitely zombies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's even the debate up to now. Like, people are saying with The Last of Us, like, mm-hmm. well, is, is The Last of Us a zombie show or not? And it's like, yeah, yeah no, it's accepted as canon in sort of zombie, you know. I also think, too, like, the bite thing is, like, something that keys in my head as, like, being a, a, a mark of a zombie is, like, if you can transmit it via bite, like, via saliva or blood, then it's a zombie. Sure. Just period. Well, and the, the definition of zombie, it's, like, the same thing as the definition of a vampire. Like, different cultures have oh, yeah. vampires that aren't, you know, they aren't all Bram Stoker's Dracula with that specific imagery, those specific, you know characteristics like you know a vampiric creature can be many things depending on the cultural context and the storyteller so i feel like zombies are the same way yeah i agree with that zombies can be whatever you want them to be but yeah it's funny though because this is the second zombie movie that we're featuring where i'm gonna double down super hard on the idea that zombie movies have always been political oh absolutely yes because this one in particular even though it wasn't you know like it was pre-9-11 I think you can totally see the state of the world at the time that they were filming this movie in the movie, even though it's a parallel universe where a zombie apocalypse happened. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And one of the things I had forgotten about, and then like when I was watching it, I was like, holy crap, this is very meaningful. And something that we still see today is the well-intentioned radical left making things worse. Yeah. Um, I forgot about that beginning sequence. Yeah. I mean, I never think about like, oh, where was this created when I get ready to sit down and watch 28 Days Later? I'm never like, oh, yeah, the lab with the monkey and all of Mm -hmm. the rage and all that stuff. But these like people who are trying to bust the chimps out of a testing facility are like, yeah, we're land world liberators, blah, blah, blah. And the scientist is like, I understand what you're trying to do, but you can't do it because these chimps are infected. And the people are just like, nope, we're letting them out. This is just going to be a thing that happens. And chaos ensues. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Yeah, I had totally forgotten about the beginning. I think that in my head, it went straight from the video montage to him waking up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I blame The Walking Dead for that because that's kind of the beginning of The Walking Dead too. I totally forgot about that. I was like, oh, right, this. But I think that has so much to say Mm -hmm. in a relatively short scene that we don't get a callback to later. It's just kind of there and exists on its own before the story proper really starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And we don't necessarily have to have it, but it adds another layer of mm -hmm. like cultural context into the film. We don't need it necessarily because really we're following Jim right. and Selena the entire time and Hannah and her dad. But when we get that sort of extra layer of like these well-meaning people who are like animal liberation, no testing mm -hmm. on animals, but not really understanding the full context of the seriousness of what they're doing, it really feels reflective of like people who like champion black lives matter not to say that black lives matter is bad not the organization but like people who are like i'm gonna post my profile picture is black and right, like right, a yeah. lot of lip service you know yeah and not a lot of like actual support i don't know it feels parallel to that yeah it's performative allyship for yes, sure exactly. you know where it's all performance and no substance and no attention to i mean in this case you know we're talking about advocacy for animals which requires some assumption because they you know are unable to communicate their needs to us in a way that we can fully comprehend using spoken language but you know it's it kind of goes to that whole thing of like um i literally just read a whole book about this uh, in terms of intersectional feminism or lack thereof mm -hmm. where you know white women in particular well-intentioned white women will charge into a situation especially women based in England or the US they will charge into a situation in another country thinking and truly believing that they are acting in the best intentions of black and brown women without actually ever asking them. Right. You know, like, yeah. what do you want? What do you need? How can we be of service to you? Right. Just assuming like, oh, I know what's best for you. And right. we definitely see that in this yes. uh, illustrated in a really interesting way. Yeah, exactly that. Like, yes, I, you know, I'm always going to be against animal testing because that's awful. But on the other hand, like not understanding the full scope of a situation and then making it a million bajillion times worse. Right. You right. know, or just throwing something, some action at a thing and thinking, this will fix it. Right. Right. Like, what were they going to do with that monkey? Yeah. Well, and it... it I mean, even if it wasn't infected, like, what yeah. were they going to do with it? <laughs> well, and it, it sort of speaks to, like, trying to... Thinking that you're solving a problem you know by eliminating a situation as opposed to understanding the systems that contribute to that situation exactly. and working to dismantle larger systems right exactly this is a perfect demonstration of like not being able to see the forest for the trees exactly yeah <laughs> like oh look i cut it down okay yeah but you missed the entire other forest yeah. That's surrounding this. Yeah. And literally ending the world yeah. in this case. Yeah. I mean, you could say that for so many other things, but yeah, this in particular, the well-intentioned radical left making things. Yeah. Literally ending the world is uh, pretty barren in this movie. <laughs> you mentioned when we first started watching the movie, rage. Yeah. Really being rage or being a metaphor for rage. Yeah. Tell me what you're, what you're talking about here. Well, so, you know, we understand from that opening scene and throughout the film that what the zombies are infected with is something called rage. Mm -hmm. 
And so the kind of big question of this movie, to my mind, or at least it, it certainly was when I first, first saw it. I did see this in the theater when it came out in 2003 here in the US. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking, I saw it with my friend Anne, and I remember like we had like a bunch of conversations about, okay, so when they say rage, are they referring to rage itself in a literal sense? Mm -hmm. Is rage the name of the disease or the strain or whatever? Is it both? Mm -hmm. Is the disease or whatever it is named that because it manifests in acts of rage or mm -hmm. activates something in uh, our brains that triggers pure rage or taps into that part of our brains? What is it? You know, mm -hmm. is it is it a metaphor? Is it a thing? Or is it both? Mm -hmm. And I think it's both. Yeah. The scientist gets like all of three lines, but he basically says that they've been injected with an inhib or he says infected. Right. He does say infected. But they've been do the chimpanzees have been dosed with a inhibitor and then exposed to violent media. Right. Like wars, people being hung, you know, it's probably real life like actual CNN clips or something like that. They didn't use actual clips. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were very careful to not use actual clips. They mimicked a lot of clips that they okay. had seen. You know, there are a lot of those images in that opening montage that we get and then sort of fades into the screen that the chimp is watching mm -hmm. are based on actual photographs or scenes from different things like um, the Rwandan genocide, I know was one that they were paying very close attention to as they were working on the script for this film. However, they made the very deliberate choice and I give them props in the era of faces of death and things like that. that right. They did not use real footage. Okay, that's good then. Yeah. It does look like real footage. Like, it does, yeah. I have to give them credit. I definitely was fooled there. But the point is, though, that like this is all very realistic looking. Yes. A very plausible that you would see this on TV. And sort of the idea is, okay, these chimps have had their ability to suppress rage inhibited. Yes. And now we're exposing them to a bunch of violent media. Is that going to make them violent and infect them? And the answer to the question is yes, it did. Yeah. And it makes them somehow by virtue of this dosing or whatever, now they're able to transmit the same thing via saliva and blood. How that happens, we don't know. We don't need to know because this right. is a zombie movie. So suspend your disbelief because science or whatever, <laughs> magic, who cares? <laughs> Chemistry, biology, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but they're able to transmit this same sort of suppressed, like rage suppression to other folks. It's like violent id, like just yeah. straight up yes. only id. We see that kind of issue pushed to like a finer point in the sadness which is a taiwanese movie where like they are pure id but that one goes towards like sex it's not just like eating and tearing and rending of flesh it's like all the things i would even argue that alex garland re-examines this in men oh yeah yeah that for sure that was one of the things that i noticed when we saw men in the theater last year is I can draw some big parallels in terms of some of the big ideas in 28 Days Later all the way to some of the big ideas in men. That's sort of like what happens when we are driven by pure id or pure instinct or whatever you want to call it 
and societal norms and expectations aren't a factor in our behavior anymore. So that kind of leads into something that I really wanted to talk about, about Alex Garland in general. Um, I've enjoyed many of his films. I really like Sunshine, Dread. I don't even care if people want to crap all over it. <laughs> if you watch the original, like Stallone, Judge Dread, and then you think that Carl Urban's Judge Dread or Dread is not as good, then whatever. Yeah, we can yeah. have a fight about it. <laughs> um, but like this, Ex Machina, Annihilation, Men, Sunshine to a certain point, Dread even. What is it about Alex Garland that makes him want to explore toxic masculinity? I find that really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because he's a cis man, and mm -hmm. but it seems like so many of his movies return to that core value as toxic masculinity, as being like the greatest of evils, like the thing that causes the world to die or causes like these intense levels of mayhem to happen. Like Ex Machina is toxic masculinity and the idea that men, cis men, can have autonomy or have control over AI, even to the point of like yeah. a feminized AI. Yeah. And have that be their subordinate. And then in men, it's kind of the same way, like mm -hmm. toxic masculinity surrounding a woman and not allowing her to grieve or have peace and constantly reminding her of like all of the terrible shitty things that happened. And then quite literally like imparting violence upon her entire life yes. in small and big ways. And this movie ends up being the same thing. Because we see that in Jim, like in terms of his character arc, he starts out being like, he needs Selena. Selena literally saved his life. Yeah. And made it so that he could even make it to the end of the movie. But then Jim becomes the aggressive, bloody, you know, axe wielding or bludgeon wielding man towards the end of this movie to protect her. And she thinks that he's infected at a certain right. point. Even though he's not, he's just, like, being aggressive and he, he gouges that guy's eyes out. Yeah. And he has become that thing. He has mm -hmm. participated in that level of violence that now Selena thinks he's infected. It's just so fascinating to me to see that he's constantly reexamining that same sort of theme mm -hmm. in so many of his films be it a zombie movie a sci-fi horror movie or even just a sci-fi movie speculative sci-fi movie another sci-fi ai movie yep another horror movie you could almost call that one cottage horror because it's less like you know science fiction it's more yeah yeah well it's something that one's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot it is it is well and even the through line between you know so much of this movie is about men, you know, mm -hmm. is about the different roles of men because you have Jim, who's our main character, who sort of goes through this transformation. You have Frank, the father, mm -hmm. you know, who is, you know, this sort of archetype of a father. You know, he is a protector. He fulfills that role and meets a tragic end, you know, in that role of protector. Mm -hmm. We have the soldiers who, again, like to me, they are such a through line from this movie to men, to some of the, the I don't even know whether to call them characters or manifestations yeah. in men, all of the um, Rory Kinnear characters. Yeah. So much of this, I mean, we have really two women in this film that we see prominently, which are Selena and Hannah. And really they are, 
they're not really fully fleshed out characters. They're kind of just there to further the stories of the men or to examine the behavior of the men in response to them. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember when this came out, like, people were rightfully so excited to see especially like a black woman in Mm -hmm. selena you know as a tough lead as someone who really could take care of herself you know she is the strong one in contrast to jim's weakness throughout the whole first half you know three-fourths of the movie i would say honestly and even at the end you know she saves him but as a character we don't get nearly any backstory to her or Hannah. There are some things we can assume. We get more about Jim. Mm -hmm. But also, they're both kind of there just for the men to react to them or to respond to them, to either desire them or desire to save them or desire to protect them or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're not really there otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. Although you can have a tough female lead you can definitely still have a two-dimensional female lead in the same breath. Naomi Harris's character is definitely, definitely like that. Yeah. And Hannah, she's a child. She's 14. So, you know, just keep that in mind. Like, she's, she's a young woman. Yeah. Um, So her ability to interact in this world is limited because there's mostly adults surrounding her. There are no other folks of her age. And she's protected. She is the way that we get introduced to... Well, she's not really the way we get introduced because Brendan Gleeson's character is there first, but she's sort of a egg to be carried. Yes. <laughs> you know, she yeah. she needs to be protected. She's unfortunately not super helpful in the way of the movie and like protecting Jim or Selena, but she's like a gem that has to be protected. So I think one of the most curious things and the thing I wish we had gotten more about, and I don't know, as a femme presenting person in this world, I can fill in a lot of the blanks on my own but selena's protection and care of hannah is like very interesting to me Mm -hmm. and i can understand it you know based on who i am and how i move through the world that instinct that we have to protect other women Mm -hmm. and yet i wanted more about that like Mm -hmm. i wanted a little more of them connecting and and bonding Mm -hmm. that we just never got um, because we were spending more time on the men. But I want to talk specifically about one moment that like eternally bothers me. Okay. Because it's so morally ambiguous. Selena giving Hannah the pills. Yeah, that uh, it's rough. It really is. Because you can see it as well-meaning you know, like, as an act to help numb her. Like, Selena at this point is thinking, we're not going to be able to get out of this. Like, Mm -hmm. this is going to be a thing that happens to you. But she's like, here, let me dose you with these pills. Yeah. I don't want to kill you, but I want to make you not care about this. Yeah. (sighs) Like, delay processing or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It feels kind of Bill Cosby. Yeah, it does. It does. And I don't, I can't remember what my reaction to that was like when I originally saw the film, other than just like, ugh, like, you know, that's an awful situation. Right. But like, as I think about it now, like, post Me Too, post Bill Cosby, like, not just with my 2023 hat on, but with like my adult person hat on. 
I'm just like, I mean, I know that it's a horrible situation no matter what, but that just, like, it just doesn't sit right with me. Right. And yeah, Hannah can't care and she feels fine and like, but her reaction time is less. So like she can't protect herself. Yeah. Um, she wouldn't even have the opportunity to protect herself if it, if one even arose. Exactly. And also there's something to be said about like having, even though you know that there's going to be a terrible thing happen, having that person able to like have all of their necessary faculties about them. And then helping to support them in processing later. Right. You know, exactly. Like, I don't know. It is like, I didn't think about it critically until you just said that. But yeah, maybe Selena is thinking if I were her. Right. I would not want to care or feel what's about to happen. But she's taking away the autonomy of like yeah her ability to decide for herself yeah she's making that choice for her yeah like something really terrible is about to happen but is throwing drugs on top of it yeah that's not more helpful yeah i think the hardest part about it is you know when i try to think like what would i do in that situation i'm like i don't know because it's a horrible situation right no matter what like it, there are no good options, but I also don't feel like of all of the shitty options, like, I don't know, that feels like a pretty terrible one. I wonder if we would be having this conversation if she had given her sleeping pills. Like, maybe if she had given her sleeping pills, oh. then the guys would not have wanted to bother her. Mm. Like, maybe that's part of it, but I, I don't know. This, this, I don't it's, know, it's an interesting question, yeah. But also, Hannah had to be able to get herself out of the house right. very shortly after this. Right. So maybe that's why they made the decision to just make it like Xanax or something. Yeah. Some sort of like mellowing drug. Yeah. That like penultimate scene of the zombies both attacking the base and killing all of the soldiers and Jim also being the aggressor in this instance and also just so shortly coming after this experience where selena and hannah are about to be raped potentially so major west the kind of the leader commander of this garrison of men is like well i promised them women and we need to Mm -hmm. repopulate the earth and i'm like which like okay you have no idea what the situation is anywhere else and you're talking about repopulating the earth yeah and not with two women and not to be flip about it, but if The Quiet Place has taught us anything, it's like maybe having a baby in the apocalypse isn't the best option. I mean, Walking Dead, too, honestly. Right. Like, crying babies are a liability. Yeah. Multiple people die in all of the above-mentioned, aforementioned films because of crying babies. So, yeah. like, maybe this isn't the thing. Or, like, maybe just give it a minute. Like... Yeah. Like, it's only been 28 days, y'all. They're just studying... Settle down. Right. They're studying this zombie to see how long it takes for him to die of starvation. And the answer is 28 days after that. Yeah. Um, So a total of 56 days, not that long. And these guys are already like chomping at the bit and willing to commit harm against other women. So there's something to be said about like groupthink about one person starting this and then other people being like, Oh yeah, no, this is a thing. We're going to do this. And also that it's only been four weeks and these guys are like, no, yeah, we're going to commit harm against these women. Yeah. 
And I don't know how you felt about the scene, but the scene where they take the other military guy who's trying to protect those two women and Jim out into that like wooded area where there's a bunch of other dead people. Mm -hmm. I think, and we can argue about this back and forth, but I think that those are other men. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, definitely. That's what Mm -hmm. I thought was like other situations where they're like, because there are no other civilian men. Correct. In the entire complex. Yeah. So they can't be the only ones that got there. Right. And it makes me think like, okay, there's no other men. There's a bunch of dead dudes in this ditch. Did they potentially kill Frank? I, on purpose. I think absolutely. I mean, I remember thinking that when I first saw this movie. Like, oh no, they took advantage of the situation. Yeah. Like, you know, or it was, you know, the leader and group think it's like, and we can see parallels in this in history. You know, mm-hmm. we see this, you know, in some of the like World War II narratives and, and even from the Iraq and Afghanistan war you know, soldiers under, especially under the leadership of someone nefarious, somebody with, you know, sociopathic, narcissistic tendencies, who's charismatic enough to lead impressionable people, you know, and that hierarchy of military structure can sometimes reinforce that. Yeah. Um, No, I think that they thought, oh, yeah, okay, Cool. We're we're soldiers. We're out here trying to navigate this weird world where things are attacking. Oh, hey, look, here's a sweet mansion that we can, you know, Mm -hmm. I think they absolutely took advantage of the situation. Yeah, I have always believed that. I didn't think about it until kind of reverse going through the movie this time. Because Frank's death is obviously set up as being like really poignant and awful because Frank has just for the first time that they've seen lost his temper on his daughter and his companions. And he's upset. He's frustrated because he's left the safety of his home. He's lost his wife and he's dragged his daughter out into some place that's not very safe in hope that he will be safe. And then he's found no safety. Right. And... He loses his temper, which is totally understandable. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think anybody could argue, like, no, Frank was an asshole for doing that. No. I mean, this is, like, a high-stress situation. (laughs) Yeah. And now they're thinking, okay, well, we've gone three days. We've seen some shit. And now we have to go back home because Mm -hmm. and back to this hopeless situation where we're running out of water because the premise of safety is not here. And then he gets infected, which is, like... It's such a bummer. It's such a crest in the movie. You're almost lulled into the sense of safety and then Frank gets infected and you're like, no, nobody is safe. This is the worst. And then he's shot and killed right before Jim is about to kill him by the folks who are supposed to be the ones granting them that safety Mm -hmm. just around the corner. Yeah. Like, it's not like they roll up. Like, it's not like tires squealing, like, skirt, and then they're there. Right, right. They were always there. Yes. They were just in the weeds. Like, they've heard this entire conversation. They've seen them looking through this stuff. They calculated this encounter. They calculated the fact that they waited out Frank. I mean, obviously, they didn't know that he was going to be infected. But who knows? They could have killed him just outside of that. Maybe they didn't even know that he was infected. I wonder that, too. Which is, it's crazy to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they could have just as easily 
been like, oh, he was mad, so we thought he was infected. Whoops. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and Jim is like, he appears, he's been in a hospital for four weeks. He's very emaciated. Yes. He has like no muscle tone. You can tell that he's like barely, you know, he, he had a hard time climbing the stairs. So these soldier dudes are like, Oh well, we can take this guy. Right, like he's right. No, he's no threat. He's no uh, he's no danger to us. Yeah, and it boils down to them thinking, you know, let's eliminate the man that we view as closest to being our equal, so that we therefore by default get the right to these women, mm-hmm. which is disgusting. Right, you know. But I think all of that factors into the thing that Romero really hammered home with all of his films which is you know what's worse is it the zombies chasing you or is it the people that you're running alongside or running to or encountering yeah you know as you're being chased by zombies this story is really a very fascinating examination of like hope and the Mm -hmm. driving the driving force of hope and the promise of safety yeah um because that's that's why they keep moving i mean selena literally says multiple times we have to keep moving. Yeah. You know, you don't stop moving. Yeah. You keep moving. And they move to Frank and Hannah's apartment, and then they move from Frank and Hannah's apartment to this mansion, and then they keep moving. Yeah. They move to the cottage once they're safe, and then potentially, theoretically, they move to some sort of military base, which kind of is ironic that, like, the movie, the original, and or the theatrical ending kind of ends on this, like, hopeful, like, upbeat kind of note mm-hmm. because it's a military plane that sees them. Right. And you would think they'd be like, oh, yeah, no. Right, <laughs> We're not going exactly. to any more military installations. Yeah. Like, no. Well, at least not any that are, like, just a mansion out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, and they probably didn't have a plane. Right. Or anybody who could fly one. But yeah. Yeah. In either case, you'd I would be a little skeptical. Yeah. Of being saved. It's interesting because I feel like, although Romero did this to a certain degree in Night of the Living Dead and and certainly a little bit in Dawn of the Dead, I feel like this movie and interestingly enough, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead take more cues from Day of the Dead, which was the least, you know, commercially profitable the the Romero film, as I've said, go listen to our whole episode on it, you know, at the time was considered not as fun as Dawn of the Dead and mm-hmm. was considered really downbeat. But to my mind is like, it's my favorite because it is so downbeat and it really just digs into like the kind of horrible, dark things that humanity is capable of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this modern wave of zombie films especially the early ones, really took a cue from Day of the Dead in that, like, no, we're going to really explore, like, the ugly, ugly side of humanity, you know, whether that's through a group of soldiers like this film does or, you know, in Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, you know, some of the characters in the mall. Um, I wish I could remember his name, but there's the the real asshole guy. Oh, yeah, the, like... Um... Damn, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, like, completely insufferable the entire time. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I feel like these modern films definitely went a lot darker with their examinations of humanity. And yeah. they, they weren't afraid to really 
go there in in a way that kind of advanced the whole genre there again. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about Major West before um, Christopher Eccleston, who is a fantastic actor. Oh, yeah. Although I'm not a big Doctor Who fan, I do enjoy seeing him and other stuff. Um, yeah. Just never cracked into Doctor Who, honestly. It's confusing to me and there's too many seasons, so <laughs> I can't do it. I need to get I- caught up on Rock of Love, okay? <laughs> I can't devote 10 seasons or whatever, 10 you doctors. To see if Brett Michaels finds his true love. I know, in four seasons. Um, no, I, I just, there's so many doctors and there's so many characters and so many people love it. I'm just, there's no way I can get caught up. But, it's anyways. A very big fandom. Yes, yes, definitely. I don't have to, I don't need to champion it. You know, there's so many champions for it already. Yeah. But uh, Christopher Eccleston as Major West, I think he's a really interesting character because. Although, like, yes, narcissistic, yes, psychopathic, because he's like, we're going to repopulate the world from this tiny mansion with, like, 12 guys. I don't even know how many guys there are, but not that many. Do you think he really thought that, though? Or do you think that he was just like, no, we're just going to rape some women because we're men and that we can do that? That is a very interesting question, because the way that he says it, he does not appear to think he is going to be benefiting from this. Like, he Mm -hmm. does not seem as though he's going to be participating. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I need to do this because I want to save my men. Like, we have this camaraderie. And I found one of my men almost, like, he had a gun in his mouth. He was going to shoot himself. Yeah. So I promised him women so that he would keep hope alive for himself. And then there's that very touching moment that he has with the cook, the guy oh, who's yeah, like the yeah, cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jim stabs the cook with a bayonet. And then there's this touching moment where Major West like kneels down with him and he's like trying to calm him because he knows that it's he's too far gone and he's going to die. And I'm just like, wow, this like he's a character with many facets. Yeah. Because, yes, a psychopath. Yes, he's obviously holding these women against their will. Also, though, like, what are his true motivations? What are his intentions? Is he doing this in spite of, like, his better judgment? Is he really trying to protect these men? Or is he truly a psychopath and he is just like, no, I'm the leader, so I get to dictate what's happening. Right. With that moment. And the only reason I would even second guess that is that moment that he has with the with the younger guy. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's um, a really good point. Because it's so tender and you can tell, like, even if he's faking it, he cares. Yeah. Because you don't do something like that. I don't think that you would calm someone or like try to help them like that unless you really cared. Mm-hmm. Or, and there was nobody around to see it. That's the other That's thing. That's true. It wasn't yeah. really performative, you know? So I don't know. I wrote down the many facets of Major West. <laughs> so, because I thought it was so interesting to see like the man who's like, well, I want to protect my men and we have this camaraderie. And also I'm exploring this zombie situation and trying to see how long they last for and also protecting this mansion. Like they've they've gone to a lot of trouble to protect this man. Yeah. Like extensive stuff. But then you also see these darker sides where like there's a bunch of dead dudes in this ditch mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's allowing his men to kind of ostracize one of the other guys who's trying to protect these women. So... Uh, I don't know. I, I really can't tell. Like, yeah. 
He contains multitudes. Yeah. Truly. Truly. <laughs> so before I get to two lighthearted things I wanted to say, or just one lighthearted thing, actually, we're post the biggest part of the COVID pandemic yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. Three years. Yes. It's been just over three years. Woof. Yeah. I think this movie, this is the first time I've seen it since the pandemic. Same. This movie has such a, it hits so much different now Mm -hmm. because of, in particular, it was a scene where Jim goes home and he finds his parents have committed suicide. And the back of the note that his mom had written to, or I assume his mom, because the loopy handwriting had left to him on the back of the photo of him said, with endless love, we left you asleep. Mm -hmm. And now we sleep with you. Don't wake up. And I, like, was overcome with emotion. Like, it's a poignant moment anyways, but I was, like, overcome with emotion because I was thinking, like, of all of those terrible, awful decisions that we had to make during the pandemic mm-hmm. when it came to health care and, like, especially in the early days of the pandemic, especially, like, March and April and May of 2020 when we had family members, you know, who had COVID and had to go to the mm-hmm. hospital and, like, you couldn't go yeah it yeah, was yeah, yeah. it was very 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 tough and i was like man this hits so much different the the terrible hard decisions that we had to make during the pandemic health, especially healthcare related mm-hmm. and the awful terrible decision that jim's parents had to make about leaving him alone yeah because they could have killed him too i mean they could have they could have suffocated him they could have done mm-hmm. anything and they were like Okay, we left you. We love you. We hope that you don't wake up because then you'll never have to experience this. And now that I'm thinking about it, and I just said this out loud, I wonder if they are the ones who left him the key. Oh, yeah, maybe. Because that was one of the things I was going to say is like Jim wakes up locked in his hospital room and there's a key on the floor. That's entirely possible. So... Like, maybe that's the connection back to that. And they were the ones, they locked his door and left him the key. Yeah, that could be, like, we hope that you don't wake up, but in case you do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think you're right. Oof, that was just, it was tough, though. Like, and it reminded me of Midsummer a lot because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they, they didn't kill themselves. But it was a similar situation, like, finding, yeah, it was rough. But to end... What I have to say on a (laughs) more lighthearted note, we're also, so keeping in the post-pandemic situation, there's a point where Selena and Jim and I can't remember, I think Mark, yeah, it's Mark, Mm -hmm. Selena's compatriot that, you know, she finds uh, Jim with, they're sitting inside of this like 7-Eleven like convenience store and there's toilet paper behind Mark and I was like do you think that they also ran out of toilet paper (laughs) like did toilet paper get really expensive and like they ran out of it really quickly I mean I I kind of wondered that about the grocery store scene too yeah you know having stocked it seemed perfectly plausible when I saw this movie in 2003 but having like been through the pandemic I'm like I mean, I know it was only 28 days, but for real, like, I still have trouble getting certain things at the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Like, three years later. Yeah. And when I think about going to the grocery store, 
Yeah, I was just like, there's no way that grocery store would be that well stocked. And not looted either. Maybe in England, it's not a thing to like do a run on the grocery store every time there's a sign of, you know, I don't know. But yeah, I I was like, oh, that's kind of weird that like it wouldn't be looted because the hospital was. Right. Granted, the hospital was in like a big city. And the grocery store was in a smaller area. Yeah, Yeah, certainly. So potentially maybe that's it. The idea, too, that it's like it was very fast. Right. Like it struck everybody down really quickly. Like maybe that's it. Well, yeah. And certainly we know from the very end of this movie because the um, the fighter plane pilot is speaking Finnish. Right. So we oh, know. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't even pay any attention. Yes. I was like, <laughs> I can't understand that. That's fine. Yes. Um. So we know that presumably other parts of the world are at least marginally better off than than they are. Yeah. And we certainly know from the sequel that um, 28 weeks later um, that other parts of the world were definitely better off, you know, and healed quickly. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe they just didn't have the supply chain issues that we did <laughs> for like, you know, two freaking years. Here's an interesting aspect of this. Uh-huh. It didn't start in China, which is yeah. where most of our manufacturing and importing, exporting and things yeah. like that. China is a major manufacturing hub of the world. And that mm-hmm. is part of the reason why we had such bad supply chain issues. Yeah. Because everything is made in China that we consume here in the United States practically. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's like something that we could consider is like, what does the United Kingdom export that right. we can't get elsewhere that's true yeah good point and also the sickness is so quick it would be very 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 difficult to get on a plane right you know and take off on a plane Mm -hmm. and then transport it somewhere else yeah because i mean they said it takes like 28 seconds to be infected right so you would not like have a plane that would have a zombie get on it and then land that plane somewhere and then potentially transmit it that way. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely not a um, outbreak situation where you can get on a plane and by the time you're, you know, on another continent, then you are starting to just barely show signs of infection and all of that. Unless it's like a, oh, I have an infected cat and I'm going to put like quarantine. There was like like a right. quarantine two or something like that. It was on a plane and the, it was a whole thing. But yeah, I mean, improbable. It, it yeah. takes, it's so yeah. quick for that to happen. Like it's very unlikely that that would be, it would spread globally in that way. That's true. Yeah. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Will we ever get a 28 months later? Maybe. Do you think so? Well, so they've talked about it for years. And for a while, we heard nothing. Um, The last time they talked about it was in 2015. But then in 2019, Danny Boyle did mention it again as a possibility. Coincidentally, the timing worked out that this part of the, the seeming delays. So in 2015, Danny Boyle was kind of like, no, I don't think it'll ever happen. Part of the seeming delays was that Fox was being shuffled around in terms of their properties. Right. And then Danny Boyle said, oh, well, maybe like Alex Garland and I have actually started talking about it. Coincidentally, this was the same time that 20th Century Fox was sold to Disney. So this is a Disney property now. 
I don't know who the Disney princess is in this case. However, (laughs) it's Jim. It's Jim. Jim is the Disney Disney princess. Yes. (laughs) So obviously the, the sale happened and then the pandemic happened and, you know, Disney has still very much been getting their ducks in a row, especially with 20th Century Fox stuff. Mm -hmm. Like they've really focused in on like Marvel and Star Wars, which admittedly they had already prior to the um, Fox deal. So they're still very much getting their ducks in a row in terms of the Fox deal. I don't know. Since then, I've not heard. Danny Boyle has some new, like, war movie coming out. Alex Garland's kind of doing his own thing. So who knows? But as of 2019, they were kind of saying, well, maybe it'll be a possibility yet again. They've done a lot with comic books in this property, too. So Mm -hmm. if you like 28 Days Later, there's really, really good comic book stuff out there to extend the story. But... Killian Murphy has actually said he would be willing to come back, which is interesting because Weeks does not feature the same cast at all. Right. But it would actually be cool, I think, in a post-pandemic world to go back to the original cast. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. Especially because, like, Hannah, the actress who played Hannah, like, she has not acted since right. then. She's been in, like, three things only, which is strange because I thought she was very good in this. Me too. But before we wrap up, I did want to ask, which of the endings is your favorite? (laughs) I mean, I'm so accustomed to the theatrical ending. And I honestly think that it's ambiguous enough. Like, it's Mm hopeful-ish. Like, a lot of people say, well, it's the most hopeful of the endings. I'm like, is it, though? Yeah. I mean, if you take it in complete absence of the sequel, like, it's hopeful question mark (laughs) i mean to my mind it's the same kind of ending as day of the dead the sort of end end where they're on the island where i'm like okay in this moment it seems okay but i am not convinced that ultimately it is okay yeah you know and that's how i feel about this ending it's very ambiguous to my mind the ending where i an all of the other endings essentially jim dies in one way shape or form Mm -hmm. the ending that they was the alternate theatrical ending i mean i think it's good if you want a really downbeat a definitively downbeat ending Mm -hmm. but i actually like the one that's a little more ambiguous it's like we're gonna trick you into feeling hopeful (laughs) there's also a radical alternative (laughs) ending ending which i think is funny that it says radical but it is where there's no military installation yeah that kind of bums me out because i think that as gross as those characters are they are so important to the sort of thesis of the whole story yeah i feel like the man in the in the room like the man in the safe room situation hold up there is would be awesome for a different story in the same universe like it should be separate from jim and selena Although that is kind of a hopeful ending as well, like the blood transfusion thing. Just to fill you in, if you don't have the DVD with this on it, that radically alternative ending ends up being that they find the one man who knows how to change these people who are infected back, which is to do a complete blood transfusion from one person to another, which they, they ran into logistical issues with that because like... How do you completely transfuse all of the blood from one person into another? Um, the other, like, they're like, do you flush out all the capillaries with bleach? Um, also, consider that Brendan 
Gleason's character is much, much, much bigger than Jim. Yeah. Which would mean that he would have much more blood than Jim. Yes. So, so anyways, the, the idea was like, okay, well, logistically, like, that doesn't work. Right. So we can't really do that. But um, I do like the idea, like, in that ending, they transfuse the blood out of Jim into Frank, and Frank survives, and Jim is the one who's infected on the table, and then that's where they end it. It's like a classic Frankenstein, you know, yes. where they do the um, the brain transfusion between yeah. Frankenstein and um, Bela Lugosi's character. The idea that Jim is like a sacrificial lamb because Frank needs to be there for his daughter and all that stuff. Although I guess that leaves it kind of open ended that potentially Jim could come back. Like they could, right. they could find a way to fix him somehow. Maybe, yeah. Maybe possibly. find enough people to get pints of their blood and then transfuse <laughs> it all in there. I don't yeah. know. I don't even know. I think that that's like pretty risky though. Blood transfusions in general, like you have to take a lot of like immunosuppressants to get yeah. that to work. Anyways, I think the theatrical ending fits very well. It's like a nice puzzle piece to the end of the movie. Yeah, definitely. Um, although I don't appreciate the idea that Selena and Hannah couldn't live without Jim. Like, clearly they could. Selena was living all, doing bad all by herself before totally. Jim came along. And Hannah's like a child. So Selena is well and able enough that she could have protected Hannah without yeah. Jim, need, you know, needing Jim's help. She had the machete. Yeah. Before Jim decided to go all eye gougy on that one dude yeah she was gonna make it yeah she's fine yeah would she have been able to repopulate the world though because obviously the only reason why we need to have women in these films is as baby baby houses so (laughs) i feel that gross (laughs) do not like zero out of (laughs) ten what are we talking about next time i'm so excited about next time Get ready for Sing Along. (laughs) We're going to do our first horror musical. I'm so excited. Okay, so that leaves us with a limited amount of options. Don't worry, I will not be singing. Yeah, it's it's all good. We we won't sing here on the podcast, but you should watch the movie and sing along because it's fun. Julia Um, can sing. You can sing. It's fine. I I just won't participate because nobody wants to hear that. I'll sing in my head. There you go. I'll be there in spirit. (laughs) Yeah. So next time we're going to do Repo, the genetic opera. Starring like all kinds of cool people. It is Anthony Stewart head. Yes. Yes. This is our first movie that has Anthony Stewart head in it. And how have we waited so long? Juliet and I both love Buffy a whole lot. Yep. We don't love the creator of Buffy, but we love the property of Buffy a lot. Yes. And... I think everybody just wanted a Giles in their life. Truly. Like somebody to just like give you all of the advice and be like the wise librarian to mm-hmm. to just guide you through high school. Yeah. High school's really scary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm so excited. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yay. That'll be next time. Yay. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Yeah.